and welcome back to another episode of the Asia DeFi Network podcast and also part of the Polkadot series. Today, we have one of the most prominent projects in the Polkadot ecosystem. And of course, welcome Derek from Moonbeam and Moon River. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. All right. We have so much to dive into and it's a very timely uh timing for the, this episode, actually, because we're just about to go into the Polkadot crowd loans at the time of recording. So we hope to be publishing this uh, ASAP as we're about to enter this exciting time. Uh, and we're going to go into all about Moonbeam, but of course, we want to cover the personal and the high level, the whole ecosystem as well. So why don't we start off with uh, an introduction to your background, Derek, because if I may, uh, there's an interesting take there where you actually came from a Web2 business. You know, it was like really successful. We're talking about like hundreds of millions in, in like revenue uh, annually. And then you moved to, you started working on another layer one, right? And then before you came to Polkadot. So we'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I, you know, my background really um, has been in uh, just building software, um, you know, Either businesses, uh, you know, other projects for you know quite some time at this point. So that's even you know to date, I'm dating myself a little bit. But since even the first internet wave in the late '90s is like when I you know came out of college and started like a, you know working on software. And uh, so I do think that actually um, just the experience from building you know different software companies, particularly the Web two space, um, that is like you know that has informed a lot of you know how we think about you know go to market and kind of strategy product strategy. Um, and we, you know, we can dig into some of those um, details, but yeah, you know, I think it's, it's honestly, it's been an advantage, I think, to just have, um, you know, some experience coming into Web3. I mean, a lot of like, um, you know, uh, founders and teams, I think it's kind of their first, you know, kind of company, like, you know, in a lot of cases, um, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, particularly, you know, it's like all the mistakes you make, right? So tons of mistakes you make, and then at least, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again, right? Like, uh, so that's always helpful you know, when you're trying to figure out like, uh, what, what to do. Yeah. So, you know, is there anything you'd like to just bring in from that experience, right? Like what kind of, uh, mistakes or, or pitfalls would you, did you kind of like purposefully avoid from your web two to web three and then to Polkadot journey? Yeah. A couple of things. I, I mean, yeah, there's multiple things that come to mind. I mean, well, probably first one I would say is, uh, is hiring, you know, like I spend like a lot of time on hiring and, uh, I think, you just realize like when you're building like a, a company or an org or a team, I, I just think people like just underestimate like how important that is to like hire the right people. So, you know, when we're hiring people, I might spend a third of my time like on like recruitment, like something like this. And I think people are surprised. They're like, you spend a third of your time. Don't you have like a recruiter? Don't you like go, you know, out, you know, kind of outsource that somewhere? It's like, no, like, you know, I want to, you know, so I think I surprise candidates like when I'm like, I do the screening sometimes, like I want to talk to them kind of first. Right. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think that this kind of um, and and even what I'm looking for in a hire has changed dramatically. So you know, when I was you know a younger person, I, I tended to focus on you know technical skills and like you know kind of knowledge. Um, you know, I would say at this point, like I actually don't even like ask any of those questions, right? I'm like looking for like a cultural fit and like you know whether I think that they're going to be you know, uh, be able to communicate well and kind of like gel with the rest of the team. Like that's, that's kind of like my, like number one thing. Cause I've seen like what happens when you don't, when you don't have that, you can have a whole bunch of technically skilled people, but you can have like a non-functional or like a poorly performing team basically. So um, yeah, I mean, it's just these, these things where you, you can kind of teach someone like technical skills, but you can't like, mm -hmm. you know, if it's like not a cultural fit, like it's just, you know, you can't teach that. So it's just never going to work basically. So Absolutely. Um, yeah. These are, so, you know, so yeah. 
So what is Moonbeam's uh, culture and mission? And, you know, it's a good time to also just do a one-two liner intro of Moonbeam. Yeah, so, um, well, you know, Moonbeam is a team. I'll just comment for a moment on that. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, what, what I you know like to see is basically like belief in the mission, right? So belief in the mission, like some kind of belief in kind of Web3 and, um, you know, wanting to be part of that change like in the world. I think that's important versus someone who just wants, say, I want to, get paid well, I want to punch the clock. I mean, you know, this is like, you want to just see like that someone actually has like, you know, an understanding and belief in like what the mission is about. And that's what's going to you know motivate people to like really build something great. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think energy is like also quite important. You know, I think, hmm. again, you can be like a very skilled person, but like, you know, I value like energy, like a lot. Right. I mean, there's just like hmm. a lot to be done. And um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, people kind of sometimes undervalue, undervalue that. But yeah, just to just to describe, you know, uh, Moonbeam, and I, and I will, you know, go back to this this question of like, you know, things that we learned from uh, Web two that were brought to Web three. I do think that has informed our product strategy also. And mm -hmm. so the, you know, the I'll kind of back up and give a story of like how we came to, you know, the idea for the project. So I think the first thing that was clear when we came into the Web three space, which by the way was not not that long ago, it was in the beginning of twenty nineteen that we, you know, we kind of came into the space. I think it was quite clear even then that, you know, we're going to be in a permanently multi-chain kind of environment, right? I mean, even if like then, like most of the traction was on like Ethereum in terms of like uh, Web3 or DAP development, I just think that uh, it was quite clear even then that there's just going to be many blockchains and they're going to be specialized to different purposes. Uh, that, if you look at the history of computing, is like it's clear, you know, like, uh, you know, there's like a lot of different kind of specialized systems that you use when you construct like a regular Web2 application. I think it's going to be the same with, with Web3. And so once you have that idea, then you realize and you look at like what exists in the landscape, even back then we said, well, the, the connectivity or the ability for these things to talk to each other, that's going to be like a critical piece. And so I think that's what kind of led us then to Polkadot already, like, you know, uh, was this idea that I think they have this framework for building different specialized blockchains and that they've thought about, you know, how these different blockchains can communicate with each other. And so I think that was an immediate kind of attraction in the sense of like having like a similar vision. And, you know, that's what led us to, you know, kind of engaging with the Polkadot ecosystem. I think once we found, what we found once we got there was that we came to like, appreciate and realize several things. I mean, one is that, you know, this substrate framework you can use to build specialized blockchains in Polkadot is extremely powerful. But it, I think it became clear that it, it wasn't going to be a good fit for everyone, right? I mean, it's, it is definitely this kind of, it's a more serious business, right? You're building a blockchain, you're you know, going for these parachain slots of which there's like, you know, limited number. So, um, it has this kind of more infrastructural feel that like when you're building a blockchain versus like a dApp, right? Where you're just building an application and trying to think about how to acquire users or, you know, deliver some useful service. So I think we realized then like, okay, there's going to be some useful thing that we can, you know, a role we can play in the ecosystem where we're providing this kind of infrastructure, but then creating kind of a developer platform where, you know, developers can come in and, uh, and build, you know, applications that are then, you know, focused on acquiring users. And I think the web, you know, the web two experience was like, okay, in order to figure out what to build, well, first of all, let's go talk to people. I think sometimes people don't do that. Let's go actually talk to like developers and ask them like, well, what is it that you would want? What would make it attractive for you to like come into the ecosystem? So these are seem kind of obvious, but I, you know, you find sometimes people don't even, they're not trying to do this research and like talk to people about like what it is that they would use, you know? And, um, and second is like, who, who's the target audience, right? And like, how, where are they now? Where do they live? And like, what kinds of things do they know? And, you know, just to kind of figure out, you know, this what, you know, who is the market that we're going after? And I think just even doing some very basic research, you figure out pretty fast that 
you know, almost most of the, the developers out there, like what they know is the Ethereum like technology stack. That's kind of been the de facto standard for a long time. And that's where most of the developers are. That's, you know, the programming languages like around that platform are the things that people know. And uh, that's kind of what we were getting as feedback is that like, you know, that's, you know, that that's something that, you know, there's this mature set of development tools that we're comfortable with like around that stack. So I think that's what we said, okay, well, we should we should build something that you know kind of allows us to address this like largest like part of the uh, of the market that exists, and um, so that's what led us to this. Okay, we'll need we need to create this like Ethereum like environment you know in order to be able to serve you know these um, uh, these users. But you know I I would say that this you know this style of thinking of like well what's the market and who is it and then you back into the product that's like a a, a style of thinking that's I I think you only come to like after. That, that's a, I think that's based on experience, right? Because I think a lot of people start yeah. the other way around. They're like build the product and then they go look for the market. And um, you can get lucky doing that. But I think in general, it, it's better to think about it the other way around, basically. You know, that, that's going to, you know, set yourself set yourself up for, you know, getting traction like a much, you know, much better way than and I think people underestimate, not, not only in Web3, but everywhere, they kind of underestimate this, hey, I'm going to build like a better thing. And then people will kind of automatically understand that and, and come and adopt it. Uh, you know, that may be true to some extent, but, you know, in my experience, uh, it's always a little bit more difficult than you think to do that, right? So it's it's much easier to, like, find, like, a you know, a large market and then, you know, back into, like, well, what product is it that they want, like, in reverse order. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Even though it's been repeated, like, a thousand times or to, to death, right? Like, build something people want <laughs> and that people will use. And and the further up or the closer you get to the users, uh, like the more important that is, right? I, to a certain extent, I think infrastructure, uh, because you're talking to developers, as in the user base may be a little bit more removed, but it, there is still room, like you said, to speak to people who will be using it. Uh, in this case, it's the developers, right? And I, I can see now with that feedback, uh, that's why Moonbeam and Moonriver is in such a unique uh, position where we're tapping into the network effects of not only the Polkadot ecosystem, whereby the relay chain uh, secures and helps all the parachains talk to each other. Uh, so you're part of that. And also at the intersection of the Ethereum blockchain or developers, right? Where like all the EVM chains, the, all the developers and the and the apps can very easily port across uh, to this uh, ecosystem as well. So we can capture both of these network effects uh, with this uh, parachains, which is incredible. Uh, and I think underlying, underpinning all of this is what you've been talking about, which is the multi-chain vision, right? The, the fact that uh, dApps and developers should think about uh, tapping into new users and new assets on, on various chains, especially if it's so easy to port over to, to something like that. And, and you've been optimizing for the experience. Would you like to uh, share a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, I would definitely say that, I mean, that's something that I feel like kind of wasn't happening when we started, but like obviously did start to happen as we were building. And th that that trend is that, you know, basically uh, a, a number of teams were really starting to look at this as, uh, you know, they had a multi-chain deployment strategy. So like, you know, they may have started on ETH mainnet and then, you know, then, you know, maybe they uh, moved or had a deployment on BSC, let's say, maybe they had a deployment on Polygon. And so they started basically, and these are all like EVM like compatible chains, right? I think it, the, the friction was low to basically take the existing like code they had from a, ETH mainnet and deploy it to let's say, you know, Polygon. And um, so in doing so, you kind of then have like these, you know, these new deployments then on other chains. And I think, you know, the interesting thing, you know, th this is feedback I got, you know, one, one of our partners at Sushi and, you know, had a number of discussions with them, including, um, you know, Maki from Sushi. Um, 
you know, in, you know, I'd asked them at one point, you know, because they are an example of a project, you know, they're on like, let's go 10 plus chain, they're on like many chains at this point, right? That's their strategy mm -hmm. is let's just put Sushi on as many, you know, EBM chains as possible. And so, you know, the interesting insight, uh, you know, the discussion I had with him was that, you know, he said at first, like we were, they were quite hesitant, right? They said, well, I don't know that this makes sense because, you know, we have this set of users on ETH mainnet. And if we kind of do a deployment on Polygon, say, is it the same users? Like, are we going to basically just users on ETH mainnet? Will they just move and bring their liquidity like over to like Polygon? And then it's just the same users, but we've like splintered our liquidity and kind of, you know, kind of left ourselves in a worse spot than if we hadn't done it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what he, what he kind of shared with me was that, um, that it's actually not the case. Like what they found is as they deploy to new chains, it's like almost entirely like new users and like assets they're picking up on, on different chains. And it, every chain kind of has its own community, its own users, its own, you know, it, its own uh, you know, activity, let's call it. And that they found that it's like net accretive, basically, like as they're moving to different chains, they're picking up like, you know, TBL, aggregate TBL and, and you, know, uh, you know, active users and other things. So I, I thought that was a pretty interesting insight. And I think that's what's fueled this idea for a lot of teams to say, hey, I want to pursue this you know, multi-chain strategy. Now, I think, you know, the it, it's a very kind of primitive thing, like right now, I would say, right? So right now you kind of, it's almost it's like a it's like porting, right? You kind of have your app on ETH mainnet, you then have like a complete copy of the thing, you know, oh, you know, over on chains A, B, C. It's like, and they're not really connected together. I mean, the integration tends to be on the front end, right? You go to the front end and then you pick like, okay, which chain do I want to connect to? And then you're kind of directed to like one or the other. Uh, and so that's where, yeah, I think we're at kind of like step one. There's going to be like a lot of like evolution, I think, to, you know, uh, to kind of make, to take better advantage of like multi-chain. But uh, right now that's kind of the, still the state of the art in some sense is this like having multiple deployments when it comes to multi-chain. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, as you said, right, tapping to new users, new assets, and in the Polkadot and Kusama ecosystem, there's very clearly like a, a very dedicated team of like, uh, well, a community of builders and users who have been stuck around for a few years and have so much pent up demand to deploy the, the Kusama, the Dot, and, and use the various applications. And and of course, I think in terms of positioning as well, right, it's, it's not just kind of like different users, but also what uh, features uh, the, this ecosystem or this particular parachain can offer them. Right? And I think one thing you've been talking about is the idea of uh, cross-chain applications or cross-chain interoperability, uh, which Polkadot supposedly does really well. And in fact, so projecting into the future is not just multi-chain, but uh, we talk about cross-chain as well, or like uh, applications mm -hmm. that can tap into the various functions in the Polkadot ecosystem. Uh, would you like to talk a bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that... Uh... Uh, you know, obviously, as I mentioned before, this was an initial attraction to why we even you know started working with Polkadot in the first place. Um, at the same time, I would note that like you know these features are are basically like just coming out now. So like you know this is like uh, you know this is I think an exciting time when like it'll you know these features are just becoming possible. Like we're shipping kind of the first. Oh, so let me back up. The in Polkadot you have this native um, you know kind of networking uh, capability, uh, largely powered by something called XCMP. XCMP is this protocol that allows different chains, you know, on Polkadot to communicate like with each other or on Kusama also. It's, it's the same, the same kind of code base. And so, you know, why is that interesting, right? I mean, I think the thing is that this, this market demand for cross-chain like uh, connectivity has been filled in other ways too, right? I mean, there's, you know, I'm even on Moon River now, we, I think we probably have like 10 bridges or something. There's like a lot of different bridging teams, but I, I do think that, um, a lot of the cross-chain integrations that exist today, um, you know, they, they kind of layer on top of 
other protocols, right? So you have, let's say, two layer ones, and then you have like a bridge sitting on top, but it kind of like layers like additional security and other assumptions like on top. And I do think that that is fundamentally different than kind of baking in this like connectivity like in the base layer itself. And the markets, like, I think is actually undervaluing like this capability quite a bit because, oh, it's like, well, I have all these bridges, like, you know, for moving assets, like, you know, why do I need this native thing? But I mean, the point is that like, you know, if you trust in the security of the base layer to have this ability to like interact with their chains, like without additional security assumptions, I do think is important. And, you know, I think we'll, you know, we'll see, right. That, uh, you know, not all these, there's just so many of these like cross-chain protocols now, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's, there's likely not all of them are, are created, this, you know, have the same level of security, I guess is what I'd say, right? Um, so I do think that that's something that's going to be extremely important. Um, to describe some of the, the features that are, that you know, are, are being shipped shortly here on Moon River uh, based on XCMP, um, you know, the first is definitely token movement, you know, so I'd say that that's the first cross-chain scenario that, you know, almost anyone, is, you know, that's the first one that's obvious to tackle. Um, in our case on Moon River, it'll allow for the, like, movement of KSM uh, from the the uh, Kusama relay chain, you know, onto Moon River. Uh, when it arrives at Moon River, like it'll be represented as an ERC twenty compatible asset. So then it can be used inside of all these DeFi protocols that are that are deploying. Um, but it is kind of this like substrate, like native asset also. So then you, you can move it back. For example, you can move it back to the relay chain and then you know stake it there or do other things. Um, so that's asset movement, and you know, obviously, I think. Many teams, ourselves included, will be pursuing asset integrations with you know between parachains and uh, and even this like state mine, which is this like asset issuance um, you know public good parachain that's on Kusama. Uh, but I, I think what's more interesting is like the the more advanced scenarios you can do. So to give an example, there you know we're working with uh, a team at Lido uh, to create a liquid uh, you know, to help support their creation of a liquid staking protocol. They want to create one for uh, for DOT and also for KSM. And so there, that what they're doing is they're deploying a DAP onto Moon River, but then you know we're providing like the uh, you know the 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 hooks for them to be able to kind of remote control staking operations on the relay chain on the Kusama relay chain. So they have this kind of like Ethereum style DAP, but then they're able to kind of you know do these remote calls, let's call them, to like perform these staking operations. That's you know interesting to me, right? So that's you know basically that's kind of what I call an, you know, an early example about natively multi-chain application where you're kind of mm. doing something on one chain that's, that's good for like our chain for Ethereum compatibility, but then you're taking advantage of functionality that's on another chain. Um, that's yeah. kind of the direction I see things like moving in is that like, and that's something that I think Polkadot's uniquely like, you know, its architecture is uniquely like um, designed to uh, allow for those kinds of like applications. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, it's so underappreciated right now. And I, and maybe some people who tune in right now may not even be aware of uh, those functionalities. So maybe I'll take a step back and, and very quickly just run through the concept of parachains, where actually when we talk about parachains, actually each project is a blockchain on its own. It is a layer one protocol that has its own kind of consensus, its own collators, its own block production, and you can build your applications on top of that. And below that, actually, Kusama and Polkadot are what we call layer zero uh, relay chains, which actually secure and help these uh, parachains interoperate. And uh, one, one interesting feature is that actually to use the, the relay chain, the parachains actually don't pay anything, right? You just need to plug in and you get to just use the, the relay chain to publish a block. So it kind of like solves some sort of like scalability, security, interoperability problems. But in, in exchange for this kind of a fearless, uh, I guess, uh, usage of the block space, there is a, a, a rent or, or kind of a, 
uh, commitment that is required, and that is to win the Parachain auction. And uh, to achieve that, of course, we have to lock up either Kusama or Dart to win the Parachain slots. And uh, on Kusama, we've already had a few batches of uh, Parachain auctions. On Polkadot, we're going to have the first batch of auctions coming up. So the auctions, of course, are, are like the, the highlight of, of the ecosystem right now. Everybody's thinking about where they should deploy their Kusama and Dots. So based on you know the past few auctions and, of course, Congratulations on winning the first batch on Kusama. Uh, would you like to share some learning experiences uh, from the trends, right? You see that, like, for example, uh, we saw that the first parachain was super overpaid. I think we had something like 500,000 KSM on Akala, and then mm-hmm. it slowly reduced like 200,000, 100 something thousand. And then people saw that, hey, it's really profitable. And suddenly it shot up again. The second batch, we had like 200 plus thousand KSM locked into each of the auctions. Uh, and we haven't, we don't know yet the ROI on those. Uh, how do you think all of these trends and you know how much you're going to uh, unlock, how much you're going to allocate, how is it kind of being reflected on Polkadot's auctions right now? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, all good questions. I mean, well, let me step back first and just comment on the, you know, the auction mechanism itself. I mean, I do think that the interesting thing for me, and I think that, you know, is interesting about like, you know, this auction mechanism is that it, it, it does it does keep teams on their toes, like in a way that it does, you know, that is not the case on other, on other platforms. And what I mean by that is that there's a, you know, there is like a, a barrier entry to even get one of these. Right. So I think that it's almost like a quality check. I would say there's a quality check in, you know, you have to be a pretty, you know, kind of sub, you know, kind of a serious team that like is going to deliver value to even get one of these. And then by the way, it's not just a one-time check. It's a check that happens continuously. Right. So it could be the case that some team, you know, you know, looks very promising, has momentum, is kind of say, okay, they get a slot. But then if you fail to deliver, you're unlikely to be able to kind of remain in the slot. So there's kind of this, built, it's almost like a built-in curation system mm-hmm. um, that, you know, will tend to curate like the best and most valuable projects to occupy this like scarce resource of these slots. So I do think, I mean, while, uh, you know, as a project team, I think that creates some challenges and things that we have to think through. It is like ultimately quite interesting in the sense that in the system design, like element of it, right? That it should, inc- it should, curate this list of like the most valuable projects to you know, occupy the slots and you know force people to continue to provide you know, to prove their value basically it's not just hey i did i i got into harvard and then i was an easy ride it's like no no you have to like reapply like every every year basically right so uh, um so i think that's interesting um in terms of what we saw on kusama um yeah i mean the slots were going for like you know pretty large numbers so i you know i do think that um I mean, obviously that's reflective of interest in the project you mentioned, this pent up demand. So I think, you know, Polkadot's been in development. Some people have been on a journey with Polkadot since what, 2017, maybe, or even maybe perhaps earlier. So I do think there is like a lot of, you know, pent up uh, demand and enthusiasm, which is great. Um, it can't, you know, those prices can't, you know, can't remain. Like, you know, I think there are given the number of slots, like over time, like as, you know, there's like, I think envisioned to be a hundred of these things. You know, I, I assume that the, uh, clear the auction clearing price will go down over time and which i think is actually that's shouldn't be seen as a negative i mean you know there needs to be you know you need to think about affordability too right i mean you can have a a team that needs it should be given a shot basically and you know again to prove their value right and if they demonstrate like you know uh, progress and traction and you know user adoption other things and you know they you, you kind of don't want to you don't want to set the bar too high i guess right <laughs> like you need to like, give people a shot um and that's actually something that I think a lot of teams can do on Kusama, right? Because Kusama is likely to be less expensive uh, than uh, than Polkadot. And then we see some teams even targeting Kusama, right? Saying, hey, like we're going to start there and just kind of prove ourselves there before we, we move on. Uh, in terms of what's going to happen on these first batch, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see 
likely, I mean, I don't know about the, the 5%, but, you know, we're probably going to see, um, you know, uh, potentially some similar uh, numbers in terms of uh, supply, like, you know, a, a percentage of the available supply being locked up into the first slots. I think that's highly, that's highly possible. Mm. what's your prediction yeah. on on the percentage right because i think we we're seeing some crazy numbers on kusama the first few like even up to single digit uh, ksm uh throughout the network being locked right so what's what's your prediction here uh yeah i think that like uh could we see like a uh, like you know a couple percent like of uh of the uh, outstanding dot supply locked up in some of the initial ones i think that's possible Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and yeah. is there anything you know you would do differently uh, from the the Kusama uh, auction strategies? I know some part of it maybe uh, I'm not sure how much can review because I think it's, it's still a competition. But the, are there some generalized learnings you would pick up? Uh, for well, um, I, well, I would say that you know Kusama definitely served its purpose in the sense of you know like we as a team are heading into these polka dot auctions with quite a bit of confidence now because we've gone through this whole process like one time already so you know a lot of the even you know even the end user like education materials the dapps that were created to like you know facilitate like end user interaction like i mean we we have all these things now so then it's like okay let's make kind of almost copies of all these things and then tailor them to like polka dot and so i think kusama definitely served its kind of canary net purpose in this sense of mm. You know, I, you know, it's it's been actually a little bit. I mean, for the Kusama auctions, I I remember it was kind of like they got announced a little bit. You know, took us by surprise almost, and then it was kind of this, you know, by the seat of our pants. We were like only Just like one it. step ahead of like when things were happening, right? We're like, ah, oh, like we got to get like the next. And this time it's almost like a little bit boring. It's like, no, no, okay, like we have, you know, project plan, and here's you know here's when things are happening, and you know, it's definitely feels less rushed and more you know methodical. But I think that's kind of the idea of Kusama, right? Is like let the yeah let the mistakes happen kind of there. I mean, yeah, I think even, you know, on Kusama one, you know, early on, like we actually managed to stall our chain because we didn't realize that, you know, like using governance, like, you know, there are certain things that like, just like don't, didn't work on Kusama the way we expected. So, you know, we yeah. had that learning and then adapted our process and obviously that's not going to happen like this time around. So yeah, yeah I would say well, that we, you know, we feel what, pretty what confident. And, uh, so it was, I think uh, on Kusama, uh, basically there's two ways that you can do like a code upgrade. Um, I'm going to get the names wrong. There's like a set code call you can do and like a, an approval call. So basically like to explain context, like uh, one of the great features of Substrate is it has this native upgradability built into it. So you, you actually mm-hmm. use the governance functions of the chain itself to figure out like what the upgrade path is forward. And that's pretty unique um, actually, because um, a lot of yeah, chains you don't rely need to on... Yeah, kind of forks or kind of off-chain consensus. So I think that is like a great advantage of Substrate. And um, in fact, I think it, it's something that leads to Substrate-based chains being able to upgrade themselves more often, which I think is actually a great competitive advantage because you can adapt to changing market conditions more quickly. But um, but you know the this upgradability, um, you know, uh, there are a couple different ways that you can use it to do the upgrade, and it just turns out that like one of them is just like incompatible. Like you just like you should not use that like as a parachain, like or you risk um, you know you risk like stalling. And so we learned that the hard way. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I think uh, that's that's uh, you know the, uh, you know learnings on Kusama. So so I guess my recommendation to teams is doing things first on Kusama is certainly like quite useful if you know if mm-hmm. you have the time and energy to have this dual deployment strategy. Uh, you know that helps a lot. I mean, you do take on overhead though of having two deployments, but you know, from our perspective, I think for teams that are really focused on the Polkadot ecosystem, mm-hmm. uh, you'll you'll find that most teams do have this dual deployment strategy and. Um, I think it might almost be a little bit of an expectation, right? Like uh, that, you know, yeah. these native teams that are serious are going to have like this dual deployment. 
yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, expect chaos, and then you know, indeed, we did see a little bit of that. Uh, and so, one thing that is different, of course, uh, I think a lot of you mentioned is the community, right? Like Kusama has been like very kind of a like retail and mass uh, appeal focused, and in fact, for for Moon Rivers uh, token distribution, it was like purely to the supporters, right? No team, no investors as well. That's going to be different for Moonbeam because, you know, now we have the team allocations, the uh, investors coming on. And I think there it's kind of like widely known as well that the Polkadot distribution, the dot distribution is more uh, skewed towards uh, institutional investors as well, right? So will, will you approach this uh, in a different way as well? You know, the way you kind of like market it or who you approach to support you during the crowd loan? It's it's a question that is we are actively kind of thinking about like now. I do so. I think the the fundamental question that you kind of come to is, are there two? Is it actually two separate communities like you know for like a dual deployment or or mm-hmm. not or like what is it that like is desirable? And I would say you know from our perspective, it, it is the case that they're two independent chains and that they you know potentially have these divergent you know, both communities and paths forward. But that's obviously not like I think that's less valuable to both if that happens right i mean they're mm-hmm. they're it's almost like siblings i think of them right so it's like yeah maybe you don't get along with your little brother all the time you maybe there's like some bickering and arguing but in the end like you're part of the same family and like you you, know, you love each other and you kind of like you know move forward together like and you're stronger together so that's that's kind of like our vision is like we want to uh you know there's differences between the two you know the older brother little brother you know, whatever you want to call it like you know sometimes you know you're different than your sibling but you know you're still kind of together for the ride so i think that's our vision and you know, we're going to try to figure out how we can you know um make sure that the communities are kind of like aligned like you know in a way where it makes sense because i do think that you know that there is uh it's it's hard for me to imagine a world where like only one is successful and the other like totally unsuccessful i mean that that doesn't make a lot of sense to me i mean i think that mm-hmm they're like mutually tied together in terms of success and traction. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, we're, we're going to do a lot of similar things on both. Uh, and I guess like if, if they're more similar and there is significant uh, overlap in the community, I think one thing we can expect to see is that the community you have gathered on Kusama can actually translate to the support you see on Polkadot as well, right? Because I think one of the side objectives of the parachain uh, crowd loan and auction is uh, not just to win the slot in the auction, but to gather uh, awareness and support from people, right? Who contribute to the crowd loans and, and loan out their KSM or DOT to, to lock up uh, in, in a show of support in the auction. And of course, in, in the Kusama auctions, we saw like uh, tens of thousands of people come on, right? Like with like uh, some of them, they were like more than 10,000. Uh, with Moon River, it's, it's around like five, 6,000 or so. Uh, and so how, how do you think about this uh, parachain auctions or crowd loans as community building efforts, right? Do you prioritize that as well? And how does that translate to also the Polkadot um, community? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there definitely is uh, a community element and, you know, part of the whole auction process is it's an expression of like your community support for your project, um, you know, in a way, right? So I do think that that is core to the whole idea of having these auctions in the first place. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, the whole um, strategy behind the um, uh, the Moon River, uh, you know, a crowd loan like process was to, you know, help accelerate and kind of expand like the already existing community that we had that we had built. And I think it, you know, it, it was largely successful. I mean, I think that it did like bring in a lot of more people and uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, empowered them or kind of like, you know, kind of 
got them skin in the game in such a way that, uh, you know, there's a pretty enthusiastic uh, community around. I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, this crossover, obviously one of the things that the Moonbeam Foundation did, um, which I think was smart, was that anyone who contributed to the Moon River crowd loan was given priority access, like into the this take flight event that we did, um, or that the Moonbeam Foundation did, that was, um, you know, kind of a community oriented sale of, uh, of Glimmer tokens. So, you know, that was at least one move in this direction of, um, you know, making sure to try to, uh, you know, to try to make sure that that or that that core community was kind of like taken care of. So um, yeah, but I think there may be other things that that uh, that get done here as well by the Moon Foundation to help uh, ensure that's the case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, to keep it more cohesive, right? Uh, like I said, just like siblings here. And so uh, in the spirit of then, you know, engaging with the community and developers, people who are supporting you and listening to their feedback, I'm curious to hear then like from their perspective, you know, what is then the differentiator or the positioning, the value proposition for Moon River and Moonbeam directly? And, you know, it, to be honest, right, of course, like all the parachains want to work with each other, but to a certain extent, there's some sort of like comparison and, and competition as well. So, you know, we can talk about like the, the differentiator with the other parachains and also the differentiator with other EVM chains, right? And, and I understand that it's, it's not kind of mutually exclusive, that um, uh, of course you can do multi-chain, right? And you can use all of these parachains, but the, there has to be a certain kind of like niche that, that we're occupying. And, you know, of course for, for Moon Moonbeams, we're talking about like EVM compatibility, super kind of uh, uh, easy to, to use, right? How, how would you expand on this? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that is a question that uh, we've gotten is, okay, well, so you're going to have these two things, like what, which one do I use? Or like, what, you know, is it one or the other? Or like, what, who's supposed to use one versus the other? Um, so, I mean, a few thoughts on that. One is that you know, what we've seen already, like, you know, not, like I said, nine weeks in at this point on Moon River is that there's like, there's a, a very large demand for credibly like secure and decentralized block space. I mean, in some sense, that's the, that's the good that we're serving to the, the market in a way is like, you know, this block space that we have available. I have like basically zero concerns that there's going to be people that want to like occupy, you know, the you know, two set the two sets of block space are on offer on both like Moon River and on Moonbeam. I mean, that's already mm. quite clear that there's not going to be a question of like, oh, can we like find people that want to like use this block space? It's like, no, it's it's you know, it's already, you know, there's already kind of quite a bit of demand like um uh building. So the question is more okay, you know, what I can make maybe some, some musings on like how I think it's going to play out, right? Um, mm. I do think that um, what may happen over time is that certain use cases like, you know, may kind of cluster together and kind of prefer like either one or the other. Mm. Um, and there is, you know, there is, while the code is the same, I mean, there is going to be likely a value difference like between the two, just given that the relay chain asset, you know, there's a value difference in the relay chain asset uh, for Kusama versus Polkadot. And so, uh, you know, I do think that people that just want, and you know, the value of the asset does tell you something about the economic security guarantees that you can get like from, you know, the base layer. So I think for people that want like the maximum economic security, uh, they probably are gonna prefer, you know, Moonbeam and Polkadot, right, uh, in general. Hmm. Um, for people that, uh, you know, are willing to, you know, where that's less of a primary concern. And, you know, for example, like, uh, you know, uh, cheapness or throughput is like more of a concern. They may prefer actually like Moon River. Um, so uh, that's, and so what does that mean? I mean, we'll have to see. Uh, I think, you know, one thing it could mean is that, you know, the heavier duty DeFi and like, you know, higher value use cases like, could be on Moonbeam, but maybe more of the, you know, like some NFT gaming use cases that could be on Moon River. That's one, uh, you know, that's one thought I've had. Um, and so we'll have to see how things, uh, you know, how things play out. But I, I do see it as, 
you know, there's there's plenty of like market demand. And so I think that it'll just it'll probably be up to kind of which communities form and like where, you know, where these these kind of um you know project teams decide to deploy will dictate a lot of like where you know where things evolve. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned that the, the NFT gaming versus the DeFi kind of like differentiation, right? Because I think we've already seen on on uh, Kusama Network, you know, of course, the, like with Akala is very DeFi focused. And even for Moon River, I've seen you uh, share some slides, if I may. Uh, I see some logos there. Right? You talked about Sushi, uh, talked about Cream or IDEX uh, or Balancer, Frax, uh, Dodo. I mean, there, there are quite a few names who are uh, planning to build on Moon River that are DeFi. And uh, well, I mean, it's okay to to have chaos if there's no assets, but when you have DeFi and you have stable coins and you have like people's like bridging assets over that that are significant to them, it, it kind of like we can't uh, treat it as as kind of like simply anymore. Right? It kind of like we almost uh, can't afford to be too lax uh, with Kusama, even though it's a canary network, right? So, how do you think this is gonna evolve uh, over time? You know, will we? somehow treat Kusama as like also a valuable network or like somehow equally valuable, almost as valuable, but just kind of like fast iteration cycles. I, yeah, I see it more as the latter. I mean, you know, in terms of like care that's being taken, like, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, code quality and deployment, I mean, yeah, there's already quite significant value, like even on like, you know, Moon River. So it's not like, uh, that's not something to be taken lightly or to kind of, you know, play games with. So, I mean, in fact, uh, you know, I've heard the, you know, kind of, um, you know, some of our, our team and I've heard complaints of like, well, this is supposed to be the canary network where we can kind of have a freer hand and try things. But like, we have to be just as careful as like, you know, there's no difference in care, basically. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much value here. So we almost need like another, now we need another canary, we need the canary net to the canary net, basically, if we actually want this environment that fulfills kind of maybe the original idea that the parody had. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, but, you know, back to your kind of original point, like, um, you know, I was saying that there might be this use case clustering, but I would make the point that it's not going to be these like sharply like delineated lines where like, okay, DeFi like goes here and then there's no, because you know, what you realize is these, the bound, the, the category boundaries are kind of like blurring as well, right? So, I mean, you know, to have an NFT ecosystem, like you need like, you know, other DeFi services available there. You can't like not have like DeFi services. Uh, so, you know, I think it's going to be more like a, kind of a directional kind of concentration of like data points kind of thing, right? Where you may have like directionally like more concentration of one thing, like on one network versus the other, but it's not the case that it's going to be, you know, all on one and like nothing on like the other one. Cause you know, it's an open market. So people will, will fill like if there's an available kind of niche to occupy and, 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 and get value and, and kind of drive value, people will do it. Right. Is what we're finding. Yeah. We see that now where I think that, you know, as there's kind of unoccupied like uh, uh, niches in the DeFi ecosystem, like available on Moon River, you know, they're getting filled. Like, so, you know, it's like, oh, like I see an op, you know, there's, you know, uh, an opportunity for a def a lending and borrowing or, you know, for, even for like a, you know, ohm like fork or, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, I think people are like, oh, like I want to do that. Right. And you see teams kind of already starting to like fill anything that they think is a juicy kind of spot to like occupy and just be a first mover there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see, right? We'll see. <laughs> and I think partly as well, it's because the Polkadot parachains are not live. So then the only option projects have is to build on Kusama, right? So maybe that's partly why, like for now, it feels more serious. And when we have the parachains on Polkadot, when we have the relay to relay bridge, uh, even, uh, we may see, you know, some uh, activity move towards the Polkadot. I guess it's anybody's guess, right? We'll see how everybody evolves. But one thing that, that is clear that has happened, of course, aside 
back from the projects uh, is also the sheer amount of like Kusama staked and and then that's translating into kind of uh, the value of the tokens on Kusama as well. I think these have uh, some implications to to be discussed, right? So firstly, you know, if, if a lot of like Kusama is uh, unbonded and then going into the crowd loans, that kind of like uh, somewhat like takes away from the security of, of the network, perhaps. Uh, hmm. And and secondly, I think, you know, at the same time, because the, the crowd loans have been so profitable, uh, like it seems that, you know, the market value of uh, the, some of the networks are almost like eclipsing in total is, has already eclipsed. And then for Moon River alone, uh, the fully diluted uh, network value worth like, like more than 4 billion is almost or pretty much eclipsing Kusama itself. <laughs> so how do you think this plays out? I mean, does, does it make sense? Uh, where is, is, it, is this a problem? Or you know, will we see some sort of repricing uh, one way or the other way for some of the chains or all of the chains? Uh, you know, what do you think of the, yeah, the security and uh, value of the network relay and as well as parachains. Yeah, so well, multiple thoughts there on the on the first question of uh, you know relay chain asset becoming un unstaked and moving into crowd loans. I mean, I do think to some extent that was the intent of the designers of the system, right? I mean, so I think that you know the whole auction and crowd loan mechanism. I mean, there were even assumptions. You know, I, I know from speaking with some of the folks at Web Three Foundation that designed the system, they already have an assumption that some portion of um, you know, the available relay chain asset was intended to like go into securing the parachains. Um, and so that's just becoming available, you know, now. So I, I do think that some of that was expected. Um, you know, I think there's always this interplay. I mean, when you actually talk to like people, the holders, there is this like interplay, um, you know, between uh, the returns that one can achieve via staking on the relay chain versus uh, deploying, you know, those same assets into crowd loans, or, you know, as, you know, I was describing before this integration of being able to move the asset, like all the way into like protocols that are deployed on the parachains. You know, I think that that's kind of a, there's like an equilibrium, a natural equi equilibrium is reached where, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, it's not apples to apples, but, you know, I think when, you know, if, in, if a holder is kind of acting in an economically rational way, they're going to compare kind of returns that they can get like on relay chain staking versus, you know, crowd loan rewards versus maybe LPing into like a, you know, a, you know, a sushi pool on Moon River, right? Or, you know, one of the other DeFi protocols is deployed there. So now there's kind of this optionality and choice. And, you know, I would say that, you know, the relay chain staking rate of return is kind of like a very important number in this like economy, right? So that's kind of, you know, it's not, it's obviously not the risk-free return because there's like slashing risk and other things, but it's kind of this pretty big fact that I think is kind of staring you in the face if like you're a holder of this asset to say, okay, well, where does it make sense for me to deploy, uh, to deploy myself? And I think it, it sets a bar then for both parachain teams and for like what's called DeFi protocols or other yield sources, uh, you know, to kind of compete with. Um, I think this is one reason, uh, this is one reason why there's so much interest in this like liquid like staking like uh, derivatives i think you know you see a number of teams pursuing this um you know it is a way where users can kind of like have their cake and eat it too right so you kind of stake on the relay chain you get the derivative asset and then you deploy that derivative asset on um you know into like uh you know into like a DeFi protocol let's say and I, I do think that seems to be just even more broadly like a trend with a DeFi now as people are figuring out ways to kind of um you know kind of uh, you know, loop their asset like multiple times, basically, right? To like uh, get yeah. like you know uh, compounded effect, right? So I do see that directionally as something that's happening more 
more broadly. But um, but that's you know I think so that's kind of all happening, and I expect that to happen. And you know, I, and I would say that there are people that are not that happy about that, right? So for example, like you know, on this uh, this liquid staking side, you know, I mean the the pushback I've heard about this is that you know it could lead to like centralization of the um, you know of the, the validators basically, right? Because then you have like a liquid staking protocol that's like kind of at least becomes a power player then in terms of like deciding like you know what validators are but um i think it's, it's basically inevitable right i mean i think that these things you know you set up a system and you know they're like you know where there's a will there's a way people find a way even if it's through like a centralized exchange right they're gonna find a way to like you know kind of achieve the effect that they want so yeah i mean there's an interesting dynamic there and like and we'll see you know, we'll see where things land. I mean, it's, it's, I think that as these new capabilities come to bear, I would, wouldn't be surprised if people want to get this like compounded like effect, like that's kind of like what people want to try to maximize, um, you know, the returns that they're, uh, mm -hmm. that they're able to get. What about, what about the other side about, you know, security, because the underlying relay chain is supposed to provide economic security uh, with the proof of stake, right? And that relies on the economic force of like needing to uh, buy uh, some of these assets and stake them. And I think that's, that's the nature of proof of stake, right? It's about the capital. And, you know, yeah. since, since now the assets being secured are already more than uh, <laughs> the underlying relay chain, right? How, how do you think this kind of plays out for the security or implications for parachains? Well, right. I mean, that goes back to your question is like, you know, uh, so they take Moon River as a parachain, you know, being almost equivalent in like value to the to the relay chain itself. Um, that was surprising. I mean, I, that was not like necessarily kind of what we expected. You know, on the other hand, you know, I mean, you see a lot of thought has gone into this, like with respect to Ethereum, right? And looking at, well, what's the value of the base layer, like ETH as an asset versus like all of the protocols that are deployed on top. And I think, you know, I haven't looked recently, but I, I do think that that has like, you know, flipping at this point, or there's, you know, there is like, you know, a lot of value deployed on top. So, um, I, you know, you know, you're kind of like, well, what, you know, what is kind of correct or not? Like, I, I guess I've, I've almost given up trying to like, you know, go in like, you know, presumptively with, oh, this is like what's correct or not. I mean, you kind of just learn, right? Like the market tells you kind of what, what is reasonable or not. Um, so yeah, I think that when you think about it though, the, I mean, the relay chain is quite specialized and, uh, it, it's specialized, but it is also, narrower in focus basically and so i think when you look at something like uh like moon river i mean it is like a you know there's like more things that can happen there right so there's like a, you know kind of this, this broader canvas so i think people are kind of pricing that in, in a way that like there's like you know there's like this this whole ecosystem that can grow like in you know what's that going to be worth in the future uh, you know people are making their bets on that <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, the the market is always right in a way, <laughs> or at, at least at this point in time, right? As and when they decide, uh, you know, what the what the value of uh, something should be, uh, and so of course to to prepare for that and to justify the implications, I'm sure the market is pricing in the the future growth and kind of like the future features, right? Uh, and and part of that is being continuing to grow and being a sustainable ecosystem, right? Winning the next parachain auction and so on. Uh, and so I think one of the common strategies that everybody has been talking about is to then maintain a dominant position by using the your advantage as a parachain that has won to accrue a treasury or like kind of like a sovereign fund for the parachain itself. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, for Moon River and Moonbeam, there's, there's already su such an idea to, to, accumulate such a treasury would you like to share more about that you know where's where's it going to come from and how will it uh, grow and diversify yeah it, it's something that like isn't talked about a lot everyone's focused just on this kind of initial 
you know, which parachain teams are going to occupy the first slots, who's going to win auctions and so forth. But uh, this is part of the challenge that's being handed to, to parachain teams um, is not just to get in a slot to begin with, but the question is, it's around like sustainability, basically. So like, what is the long-term plan uh, for ensuring that you can, you know, it's basically an apartment you're renting, right? So you have, you have a lease for a year, you need to live there for like, you know, for the next 20 years, let's say, like, what's your, what's the plan to kind of like continue to afford like your, your rent payments, like, you know, like over the course of that time. And uh, this is where I think um, what some people don't realize is, you know, they might say, well, you just continue to run crowd loans. I mean, these are great. Like, you know, it's like, uh, let, let's just keep doing those. Well, you know, you, you'll, you know, as a team, like, or as like a protocol, you'll run out of rewards at some point. Right. I mean, that's just basically like a, you know, yes, it, it helps you bootstrap, but like, you know, ultimately there is just some, I mean, unless you're, you kind of have some huge amount of like new issuance, like you're not going to be able to just, um, you know, kind of keep doing crowd loans. Right. And so I think what many teams um, that are kind of thinking about this, like long-term sustainability plan um, are looking at, and I include us in this, in this bucket would be, you know, to kind of uh, have the chain itself accrue enough relay chain asset uh, over time, such that like there's an end state where, you know, the chain can be fully self-sovereign. And what I mean by that is that like, you know, imagine a world where maybe there isn't even a crowd loan. Maybe there's just, you know, like an on-chain action that, that like directly puts in a bid, like on, uh, you know, into the, into the auctions for a slot. And then, so the chain via its governance functions basically would, would go and like perform that action and then stay, you know, pay its own rent and stay in the slot. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the, the end state um, that that uh, we envision that we would like to you know have like uh, Moonbeam Moonbeam get to, and so then the question is just like how do you get there, right? So you need to plot a path that will get you there, and uh, you know I think there's almost no team that has like um, you know we were talking about before what could be like you know some kind of large sum that, to just put down like you know to be able to win the slot directly, but you know that's a key question is you know how how does this um, you know how what is the path to sustainability, and uh, you know for us like um, a big part of that is that part of like the new issuance that like happens all like in in the moon river and moonbeam systems does go towards like this uh you know what we call our para, uh, parachain bond reserve um to be able to ultimately um you know accrue enough of the relay chain asset uh to be able to be self-sovereign so that is that is the concept mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah because uh, i think the the assets have to come from somewhere right and right now as i understand the the business model, if you may, uh, the revenue model for, for Moon River and Moonbeam is to take gas fees, essentially, uh, and well, 80% of it is burned, 20% of it goes to the treasury, but the, the asset that's going to the treasury is the, the native token itself, right? So at some point, we still need to somehow convert it to uh, add a KSM or DOT or, or crew that in some other way. And so I think it'll be really interesting to uh, follow, I think, like the evolving models that could come up, right? Be it, you know, um, some sort of bonding, some sort of diversification that uh, many DAOs are actually trying to go through right now. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously there's old fashioned ways to like, oh, so, I mean, the question of these conversions, we have, you know, uh, we don't necessarily have all the answers yet, but we have looked at this problem. It is an interesting problem. Uh, I, obviously, there's like kind of what I call more old fashioned ways to, to solve this problem, which is you could do a, uh, you know, like a, a community like a sale and then and exchange like one asset for the other. Um, it turns out that like, you know, just directly trying to use protocols like, you know, that like if you have local DeFi protocols is actually a little bit tricky because, you know, one simplistic idea, you know, uh, is like, hey, well, we, we have these like DEXs like, you know, on the platform, let's just do a, a DEX trade. But you realize that like there's like practical problems with this, so, like, you know, governance motion might take like 
three days to enact. So like <laughs> think about like the front running is possible if you see some like huge trade, like slow motion, like coming into like a dex. I mean, you're going to get like heavily like front run. So yeah. know, there's like practical challenges here. What I think I'm most interested in is I do think that you look at some of these like newer DeFi protocols. I mean, there's like, uh, for example, there's like the Iron Bank. There's other like there's like new protocols that are kind of targeting other protocols as their customer, basically. Right. And so in mm -hmm. this case, you know, for one thing that would make sense could be um, you know, let, let's like, let's like uh, borrow like the relay chain asset and use like our own asset as collateral on some, you know, kind of protocol to protocol like action. Um, mm. You know, I think that's like interesting, right? Because it might be the case that, you know, you don't even want to give up like that, like, um, you know, the, the, the native like asset, you just, you know, need practical access, you know, for a fixed like amount of time uh, for the relay chain asset. So, um, mm. yeah, I think that we'll continue to see kind of evolution in this area as there's, know more customers for like these you know protocol to protocol kind of um, you know actions to target yeah that's a really interesting idea and i think alongside that there's been a emerging narrative around DeFi 2.0 as well where protocols control value or liquidity and they can either give that out or like uh buy that through some sort of like a bond in in some cases where like people actually give you ksm or dot in exchange for like a discounted uh, mover or glimmer token or to give you some liquidity and in that sense then the treasury or the protocol actually then owns it and you can use it in whatever way you want so that perhaps uh, the DeFi 2.0 kind of tactics can then, you know, uh, overlap or or like merge with the parachain treasury building tactics, right? I think we'll see how this evolves. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of the DeFi evolution we're seeing is kind of like creating like more and more specific products that like meet just some like, you know, the actual need at hand without like a mm -hmm. lot of other extra baggage. So I'm sure someone will maybe create a, um, you know, kind of a, you know, uh, you know, parachain like bond as a service, you know, kind of protocol for teams like us where, you know, we kind of put in, you know, it's kind of, it just pays for like the, the carry like time, like, you know, of, of that asset for the, for the, the parachain, like a uh, lease duration. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think over time, I can see a future where like, if, if all of the, the major parachains have a sub, uh, substantial amount of relay chain assets, uh, they if, essentially you'll become like the mega corporations of the ecosystem and not only fund yourself, but maybe even like a future uh, parachains, right? Other newer para or smaller parachains, right? Perhaps that could be some sort of a group or a DAO or a syndication going on. I think the possibilities are endless. <laughs> yeah. So um before kind of like we, we get lost in our, with our heads in the clouds thinking about the future, let's, let's just come back to, to the immediate present, right? I think we have just a few minutes left. So I want to leave everyone with a concrete call of action as well. Uh, the auctions are coming up. So there, there are very concrete things that people can do right now uh, to prepare for that. What would you like to share with the audience here today? Yeah, so um, I would share that you know the uh, the Moonbeam Foundation, like you know, just uh, as uh, was done for the you know Moon River, uh, there will be a crowd loan um, initiated uh, uh, shortly. I'm not sure exactly when this video will be posted, but it will be you know maybe even by the time it's posted, it will be up and running. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know we you know the you know we're, we're looking to kind of um, assemble support for Moonbeam to become a parachain uh, on Polkadot. We're aiming for one of the, the first five, um, you know, slots. And, uh, you know, we very much, um, you know, appreciate kind of, uh, you know, s support, like, you know, on, uh, you know, making that happen and, uh, you know, to engage with, um, you know, kind of the, you know, the, with the community that's kind of, um, you know, formed around, uh, around Moonbeam. It's a, it's grown quite a bit. There's, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, activity and kind of interesting things going on. So yeah, we'd welcome, you know, new folks to to join and 
and help support uh, the project. Awesome. And of course, to wrap it up, uh, as always, you know, is there anything you'd like to just shout out or would you like to, anything you'd like to share with either builders out there, community members, fellow parachains? Is there a message you'd like to leave us with? Uh, I guess I would just leave with the, uh, you know, I, my belief is historically there's just been this, always this like kind of more tribalism and like kind of like zero sum, like, you know, like my chain's better, it's going to win versus not. I like to think that this, you know, as we're moving further into this multi-chain kind of future, it, it just becomes less, that that becomes obviously like less, you know, sensical basically, right? Because, you know, you move into an environment where you can kind of, uh, you know, different chains are good at different things basically, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you're going to be, you know, leveraging all of them like, you know, like or, or, or many of them. So I like to see that, you know, I think that, that's kind of built in, you know, very deep into the philosophy of uh, of Polkadot, and uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the the message that I, you know, that, that we like to give is is kind of that, um, you know, in the future, I think that it's it's just all positive sum basically, and um, you know, we'd like to be able to push that forward. Awesome, awesome, such a resonant message. I think Gavin has always been pushing as well. Polkadot is a bet against chain maximalism, or in crypto talk nowadays, we all like to say we're all going to make it, right? <laughs> we're all going to make it. I like it. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much again, Derek, for your time. Uh, and everybody, please check out Moon River and Moonbeam. And thank you again. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks for having me.